Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Samuel West about the Museum of Failure. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Looking forward to this chat. Yeah, for sure. Me too. Um, It's such an important thing to talk about and uh, nobody wants to. So I'm so glad that that we're stepping up to be brave and talk about failure today. Uh, But before we jump into that, would you please tell us a bit about yourself? Um, Yeah, Samuel West. I'm... I feel I keep telling people I'm 50, but I'm I'm actually 47. Um, but I feel like 50. Um, <clears throat> and I I'm a psychologist by training, clinical psychologist. And about 10 years ago or so, I um, I decided that I needed a PhD in something else than clinical psychology. So I did a PhD in organizational science, organizational psychology, focusing on innovation and, and climates for innovation in, in organizations. Um, and did consulting work and stuff uh, along with the, the, the PhD program. And that's what led to my, my, folk, my research on play and, and playfulness in the workplace and how that promotes creativity and innovation Sort of, I know it sounds like way off, but that led to the development of Museum of Failure. <clears throat> and back when you were an undergrad, what led mm-hmm. you to the field of psychology? Um, so I, I dropped out of high school in California where I grew up. I, I went to high school in California and I dropped out um, because of whatever reason I, I thought I was too good for it or whatever. I didn't, I didn't really have any academic role models. Um, so I, this whole idea of going to university was sort of lost on me. Um, and I got a, what's it called? Is it called GED, where you do a test? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I got a GED. Um, I remember taking that test. Um, it was so easy, I thought. Um, and then I uh, dropped out and, and moved to Iceland, where my, uh, uh, my mother is from. And just to learn Icelandic and sort of revisit my roots. And um, yeah, I never thought of school more than, you know, I, I didn't think of school at all. Moved to Sweden, uh, married a Swedish woman and moved to Sweden with her and realized that, whoa, education is free in Sweden. Why? You'd be stupid not to go to school. Uh, so I got my high school, what do you call it? qualification or, or exam in, in Sweden and got into the clinical psychology program. And the reason I got in there is because I didn't have the math to get into the doctor, the medical program. Had something drawn you to psychology at that point or were, when you were just looking at the qualifications, were you just kind of following a gut mm-hmm. instinct like that's the one I can get into? <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I joke about it saying I got into psychology because I, I, didn't, I, I didn't get into uh, a medicine. But um, I guess it's partially true. And the other part is that psychology, I just, you know, I found it infinitely more interesting um, than, than, you know, medicine or the initial studies in medicine with biology and anatomy. I, I can't remember stuff. So I 
failed at anatomy as well. Um, but no, psychology just it just it was perfect. I I loved it. So I did a, a master's, a clinical master's program in Sweden uh, at Uppsala University, and it was the best thing I ever did. It was awesome. And now you have a museum of failure. I, yeah. I love that you have one. Um, <laughs> It's how did great. it come it's fun. about? It's, it's fun. I have to pinch myself like, yeah, no, what? No, I have a, I, you know, I own a museum. Really? <laughs> like what? Um, it's, um, so I was doing my research was focused on helping organizations uh, be more explorative and experiment, do more experimentation uh, all for, you know, for innovation and, and progress. So, one of those, both of those activities, exploration and experimentation, are both very prone to failure. Um, th- things don't always go as planned, or actually, they rarely go as planned. And um, people have a, even in the coolest companies, people have, uh, and definitely in academia, people are very uh, like sort of afraid of of taking risks where that where they risk complete and utter failure. Um, so, so I was playing around with it and I found some really fascinating research on uh, failure, taking risks, learning from failure, and all this is in the sort of organizational context. But I couldn't figure out, I, I, was so, I thought it was so fascinating, but I couldn't find a fun, interesting way to communicate it. So I didn't want to write a book. I didn't want to do a TED Talk about it. I didn't want to write any... Uh, uh, scientific papers about it. I, I thought it, I thought it was all kind of boring methods of communication. So, and I didn't have any solution. I was just like I had this great information that I wanted to broadcast to the world, but I had no vehicle for that. Um, <clears throat> and then the summer of 2016, I was on vacation with my family down in Croatia. It's it's like Mediterranean. Far East Mediterranean, um, and uh, stumbled upon a museum called Museum of Broken Relationships. Have you heard of that before? I have. Yes, yeah? I I found that online a, a couple years ago. Yeah. Um, I haven't been to it, but I've seen some of the pictures. It's intense. It's 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 it's. I I was blown away with how they they took a very abstract concept of you know broken relationships um and they the museum itself was you know simple artifacts that people had donated that represented various forms of broken relationships and this the short stories with each artifact i was just fascinated with how they managed to put that together and it was very simple but powerful um, and that, that's when I decided that I, if they can do a museum of broken relationships, I can do a museum of failure. Um, so that's, 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 that's the sort of inspiration to, to the museum. And then it took about a year to actually get it open, um, opened it in Sweden where I lived at the time. The, the, the museum of broken relationships, if, if I'm recalling correctly, people actually sort of self-select to donate things to them. Yes, yes, yes. For the Museum of Failure, did you have to solicit things? I mean, were people like jumping up and down like, I failed, here's my stuff that proves it. How how, how do you do that, Samuel? I wish, I wish, I wish. It was such such a nightmare. Um, 
so I, I knew I was on to a great idea with the Museum of Failure. And I had quite a good network of uh, innovation directors and innovation managers and you know, even in the coolest companies in Northern Europe, mostly Scandinavia. Um, so I thought it was going to be easy. I um, contacted these companies and said, hey, I, you know, uh, it's me. I've got a cool project here. Uh, can you donate some of your fail like to Ikea and some of the bigger Swedish companies? Like, hey, can you donate some of your innovation failures to the museum? Or, or loan me them or whatever. And I got zero. I got nothing. Nobody wanted to be part of this. Not even the, <clears throat> not even the most brave, awesome companies. They all sort of, you know, refused to reply to my emails. Um, it's the phone call log of failure. They yeah. wouldn't call me back. They wouldn't talk <laughs> yeah, to me. Yeah. They wouldn't reply. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but it, it would be, it, that was my first sort of uh, experience of how... Like, so intellectually failure is one thing like, oh yeah, we should embrace it and we have to take risks. It's all, it's all great. But when it comes to your failure, it's not, yeah, it's avoided. Um, it's uncomfortable to talk about. So, so originally I, um, I, well, I didn't get anything. I didn't get any donations. So I decided that I'll open anyway and I'll just buy the stuff. I'll find whatever I can online and through obscure forums and through contacts. And I did get some donations, but they were not from companies. They were from individuals and ex-employees and, and stuff. Um, <clears throat> so when we opened the first time in 2017, I had about 70 items, 70, maybe 75 items. Uh, now we have 160. Um, <clears throat> but um, yeah, it was difficult to get, to get the items. And I have a little bit of museum background. I don't want yeah, to overstate yeah. it small. Yeah, uh, come on. What have you done? Uh, but, oh, well, when I was a grad student, I was an assistant for um, a curator at the Smithsonian. Yeah. Um, and so I... Hard to beat the status of, of Smithsonian. Yeah. Uh, well... I, I had a, I had an assistant job, so it was I liked it, but um, so I don't know a lot of the nuts and bolts details. And and the year before that, or a couple years before that, I worked in museum education in a very small museum in New York that nobody's mm -hmm. heard of, but it was great because it was so small that I ended up doing like all the jobs, <laughs> like yeah. making coffee for the guest speakers, yep. and you know just whatever <laughs> had to happen, yep. as well as designing programs for small children and stuff. But it's, it occurs to me that all of this stuff is incredibly expensive. Museums yeah. are amazing, but they're not free. Yeah, Did you no. get grants or how does this yeah. work? We got, I got, I got 60, 60, $70,000 from the Swedish uh, innovation fund. So they, they helped me start it. So the Swedish government fund that promotes innovation. Um, so, and they, th th without that, I could never have started. I mean, it took me a lot of time to do it and then buying the items, but uh, one of the mistakes I made early on was the um, I, I had no idea what like the furnishings, like the display cases and lighting and stuff. I thought, yeah, I know, it just it's it's cheap, right? It, or it's not that expensive. Turns out it was hor horribly expensive, um, and it totally sort of yeah, it, it it was almost impossible to open because it was so expensive. Um, and 
with so without the without the external funding, I would never have been able to start it. The the two museums that I worked at had far more stuff in storage than they had on display. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even the small one, I was really surprised yeah. when I ended up um, seeing so many things that they had carefully, mm. you know, in the archival paper, inside mm. the archival box. Mm. And I would say, mm. this stuff is amazing. Why why can't we why put this out? Yeah. Why can't why can't yeah. we show it? And then they yeah. were like, <laughs> You have no idea how much it costs to properly display things. Nope. So <laughs> um, do you have all of your things on display? Um, yes. I mean, I, I say yes, because there's some items that, you know, are maybe inappropriate for like, if there's like sex, adult sex toys might not be relevant, failed sex toys might not be relevant for um, a posh cultural center exhibit. Um, whereas it fits perfectly in, you know, downtown Los Angeles. Um um, and then brand certain brand names are not. There's a uh, an exhibit opening in Taiwan soon, and some of the brand American brand name items are not known there, so they're not really that relevant for that audience. Um, so th- for that for those reasons, some items are not on display. But I'd say ninety percent is on display. And so the museum is touring. So I have a couple of questions. One, does it have a permanent home space in Sweden or was it always designed to just go to the people in communities all over the world and say, let's talk about failure. Here's yeah. some examples. Yeah, it, was, it was designed to, it, the, from the start, it, the, the first show was open just over the summer. And the, from, the, from the start, it was designed as a touring or traveling exhibition. So, I mean, in one way, it would be nice to have a permanent home because it would, it's, it's not easier maybe, but it would be, it's just not, it would be nice to have a, a, a an anchor where um, both I and, and everyone you know, working with the museum can sort of develop it because it's kind of, if every new, every place is new, um, there's, I mean, the museum and the, the collection has continued to develop, but I'm like, I'm interested in developing it even more. And that would be easier if it had a home base. Uh, yeah. So do you travel a bit with it? I'm always in an airplane. So yeah, I'm, I travel with the exhibit. Um, so for, for example, when it opened in Minneapolis now, um, earlier in November, then I was there to oversee the building of the set to make sure everything is, you know, displayed correctly and, 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 you know, just oversee the, the work with it and, and also sort of make sure that it not only looks good, but that it's that the items are presented in their best possible way. Um, yeah. And do media, do, you know, the promotion. I mean, that's a big part of my work at the museum is to, to do the, the morning talk show interviews and, and, and things like that, that, that help spread the word that the museum's open. And I'm talking to you right now uh, from the west coast of the States, and you're in Spain right now? Mm-hmm. I'm in southern Spain, in Malaga. So right, I just, I just went for my sort of afternoon walk, and I, it's, it's so nice and clear. I could see Africa. I could see Morocco uh, from, from up from the Moroccan mountains in the, uh, across this, the ocean here. That sounds amazing. Where is the next place you have to fly to for the Museum of Failure? Um, Taiwan is the next opening, but 
it's still closed because of COVID, so it doesn't look like it doesn't look like I'll be able to fly there, um, which is a bit of a worry. Actually, um, we'll have to make do with with video and 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 Zoom. But um, yeah, I, I, I was planning on going to Taiwan uh, end of the month. <clears throat> How do you hope that families and professors and educators will use the museum of failure? I mean, multiple ways. I mean, the the basic the basic message of the museum is that we need to accept failure if we want innovation and we want progress, and and that's not limited to technological progress or or you know um, um, it's not limited to any one field. It's in any aspect, whether it's scientific progress, we have to we have to be willing to take risks and research, to spend time on research that's not going to lead us anywhere. Um, we have to we have to be willing to test bold ideas that most likely will fail um, for any type of progress, and that's that's the main mission. That's the sort of the main message of an aim of the museum. And secondary, it's that if 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 we're willing to talk about failure. Um, then we can learn from it, and that's that's like the best the best possible outcome from failure is that we actually learn from it. And the third sort of aim, which I didn't, I it wasn't thanks to me. It was it kind of grew organically from the response from visitors, and that is that um, visitors feel liberated when they come to the museum and feel like they, when they see the big brands fail, you know the 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 Googles and the Apples and etc., and then they feel they feel like if they can fail with all their resources and experience uh, and competence, if they fail when they try new things, then us little us individuals can also fail when we, you know, take meaningful risks, and uh, and that's a liberate that's 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 a really I, I love I love that effect of the museum. So that's what I hope that people. Um, visitors, um, not just from not just schools, academia, but everyone feels like inspired uh, by it. Why do we have such a fake idea of the path to success? That it's just you know some people succeed and other people fail, and the two are not linked. Yeah, I don't. I I've thought about this a lot, and I don't really have a great answer for you because uh, we we're as a society we're obsessed with success. We. We, we, I mean, it's not just the United States. Most of West, on all of the whole world, is obsessed with uh, successful people. We look up to rich people, even though there's maybe no other reason, no no other positive attributes than that they're rich. Uh, we still look up to them. Um, we admire, you know, success in any form. And then we want to be with success. We want to be like them, and hope that it rubs off on us. And um, I, I, and 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 the more we sort of glorify success, the more we stigmatize failure. And it's a it's a paradox because we th- there's very little success without failure. Um, so yeah, I I, I I don't know why it is that way. Um, but it's definitely time to start questioning that. 
Have any of the companies, now that they've seen what you're doing, have they wanted to get on board and say, oh, yes, failure is a huge part of why we're successful. We wouldn't be as creative with our products unless we developed a remote control with 88 separate buttons that you couldn't even hold in one hand. Exactly. Um, some companies have been, some are very positive. Um, IKEA is one company that's been very supportive. Once they realized that the museum wasn't making fun of the failures, but actually uh, putting them in the in a good context uh, that, that, that can be productive and, and we can learn from, then they were on board. They were a big supporter of, of the museum. Um, we even got to borrow a, a, a couch from them there was an, an, an inflatable couch uh, that failed in the 80s and 90s. Um, and Microsoft was, has, I mean, has been supportive. They, uh, a representative from Microsoft was at the museum and afterwards handed me his business card. And I was like, oh, no, we have two items, three items from Microsoft in the museum. And we're not very kind towards Microsoft. Um, and he's, he, told, he gave me his business card. He was a, a, a very high-level um, executive. And he says, please contact me because we have many more failures at Microsoft. Um, that's, the, that's, the right, that's the attitude that I think most companies, more and more companies are displaying towards the museum is that, almost now i'm pushing it a little bit but it's almost considered like a badge of honor to be at the museum because it means they're actually innovating you can't get to creative thinking if you don't do something that hasn't been done before and if yeah, you do exactly. something that hasn't been done before there's no clear path to get there there's a messy path to get there yeah no absolutely i mean and and what when we when we consume these stories of success regardless of what field or what part of life it's in we see these sort of success stories and they're seldom they seldom tell the whole story you know um uh, of how that success came through many failures or through hardships or sometimes success often you, you reach a success whether you're an individual or a company and you pay a very high price for it, you know? Um, so there's a, there's a quote, and I can't remember where, where, who to attribute it to, but it was like something about success. Don't ask like, how they got to success. Ask what they had to sacrifice to get there. Like, was it your health? Was it your family? Was it your this? Was it that? It's seldom, the reality is seldom as simple as it's presented. And that's where failure comes in as... Um, and I mean, at the, the museum is definitely an example of this, that it's like, it's, it, it's, a, it's an authentic story of the way things are. Uh, it's not been manicured by uh, corporate uh, uh, PR people and spin doctors. It's, 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 it's the real version. Um, I don't know, because we, we're, we're so used to being sort of force-fed these these curated stories of how things are, it, uh, it, the whole narrative of success, in, within the whole narrative of success. Um, but we all know that there's more to it. Um, there's much more to that sort of, those wonderful success stories that we don't get to hear about. And 
those are often at the museum of failure. So what, as a psychologist and someone who now has a museum dedicated to how we can have a reframing of failure, what are some tools we can use to look at our own failure in a way that takes away the shame and lets us use it as a, as a learning experience? Um, there was a, there was a, an old book and I, it's, it's quite old. I, I, the book itself was okay, but the title was awesome. Um, and the title of the book, it was for anxiety, people with anxiety. Um, and the name of the book was Feel Your Fear and Do It Anyway. Um, and, and I like that because it, it also sort of uh, explains how we have to accept that shame, that those bad, that, un, that discomfort. Uh, otherwise, we won't be able to deal with our failure. So, uh, I don't think you can eliminate those negative feelings attributed to failure. I think you just have to accept them and realize that they're not as horrible as they're not as intolerable or miserable as you might think they are. It's kind of like if you, if you realize that, yeah, it is painful to fail. Everybody has failed. We all know what it feels like. And, and, and to accept and say, I'm, I'm willing to ha- take that discomfort because I want, I, 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 these, these risks are very meaningful and important to me. Then it's okay. And that, that pain or that discomfort uh, isn't that unbearable. And it, be, it sounds like if we do that step, then it doesn't become permanent. We can pass no. through those feelings and we can get to another step, but we can't skip those feelings. No, I mean, and that's, that's a little, I mean, that's partially the issue where with definitely for organizations, they think that, and, and, I, and it's definitely applicable for, to us as individuals as well, but where they think that they can just jump from one success to the other. And then when something fails, you just sweep it under the carpet and ignore it. But that's extremely wasteful. You're not learning from those failures. And also, um, if, I mean, in the context where everybody has to be successful all the time with everything, um, it makes it very difficult to own up to and be able to sort of own your, your failures as well. Um, it's, very, it's very skewed and un, unproductive. I was looking at some of the um, examples of your museum online. I haven't gotten to go to it in person um, where the exhibit is right now is hmm? about 3,000 miles away from me. <laughs> too far away. <laughs> Even though it's in my country, it's too, too far. It's not a day trip. It's not going to work. Um, but I would love to see it. And the online um, links that you have let us see a number mm-hmm. of the artifacts in it. But, but a couple of things really struck me about failure, which is perspective. You had yeah. the example of the the candy company mm-hmm. and they wanted to make this marshmallow and it came out too tough and too chewy and the inventor thought that he had failed. But they realized that the batter actually tasted really good. So they reframed how they looked at mm-hmm. what he had made and they reframed what they named it mm-hmm. and then it was a success. Yeah. It's one of the most successful, most popular candies in in Definitely in Sweden, probably all of Scandinavia as well. Uh, they're like they're a failed marshmallow, uh, and they're they're super popular and good. 
Um, I, and a perspective is also important. Uh, so that was an example of a failure that led to ultimately led to uh, success. But most of the items in the museum, there's no success at the end of the failure. It's it's failure, period. And then let's learn from it and then try something else. But the um, there's the perspective is important because it's it's often difficult to know sort of how to evaluate when is something a failure. Is it is it you know depending on when you draw the line? Like now we're going to look back and look at it as a failure or not. Things change over time. Um, I mean, the Segway is a, maybe not the greatest example of that, but it's an example of how something that was revolutionary te- technology-wise, uh, there was huge expectations on the Segway, and basically it met, it didn't meet any of those me- expectations. It was a total flop, both money commercially, as in it didn't make any money. And also just, you know, it didn't really catch on the way everybody thought it would. Um, so it was a failure from just about any perspective at the time. Um, but then over time, um, the, the, the segue has been extremely helpful for, I, I've gotten several emails from people saying, please, why is, why is, this, why is the Segway in the museum? And I have a, a, a mobility, you know, disability, I can't move around, and the segways changed my life for the better. Um, so perspective on like commercial, big, global can be a failure, but then for individuals, it could be massively successful. Um, that, that I don't know. That was maybe a bad example, but I mean, failure has you have to you have to like look at failure from different angles, and even when you look at failure, your own failure, whether it's in you know that school assignment or that research pro- proposal or whatever you're doing, like the, it's difficult. It's really difficult to evaluate the event immediately after the event. Like you, you have to, you can evaluate it then, but you can also evaluate it again in a few years or a few months or whatever. And you and it changes. It could turn out quite good, you know? <laughs> So, so life is complex, and and failure is probably even more so complex, and so it's it's difficult to sort of. I do it for the museum. I say this is a failure, and it's in a museum. So I do, I do, I do judge things as a failure and put them in the museum. But in reality, it's really difficult to sort of. It's not. It's not. A, it's not a yes or no answer. And as people of are own culture, we can look around and say, I have no idea why this thing is so popular. <laughs> I know that everybody is talking about fill in the blank and, yeah. or, and they all love it and I don't get it. And that can be true of a popular TV series or yeah. a, a, something everybody's storming yeah. the stores because they want this particular thing or there's just a food trend that everybody's, yeah. oh, you've got to go have this. Yeah. And you kind of have either this really tepid feeling when you finally encounter the thing mm-hmm. or you're like, that, no, I'm a hard pass on this. I don't like this at all. This tastes terrible. And the same thing I think can be true for the Museum of Failure. I was looking through some of the examples and they had these really cute ketchup bottles and there was like purple ketchup and green ketchup. And I'm like, that's adorable. I would have yeah, loved that. What's wrong with that? <laughs> why, why didn't that catch on? Why do people like, like really tiny bitter hors d'oeuvres, but they don't want adorable ketchup. I don't understand. So both failure and success can have an element of luck. Oh, definitely. 
I mean, luck is so. So so let's split up. So luck is one element there where sometimes you're you, you can do everything right, and you know everything you've done is is perfectly correct, uh, but then something happens, something unexpected, and it you know destroys your project or or your initiative. Um, so luck is a big part of it for sure. And you can't control luck um, uh, at all. There's a, there's a, there's a, uh, uh, a diet candy or a diet bar, like a, a, a appetite suppressant bar at the museum. I don't, I can't remember if it's from the 50s or 60s, but it was very popular. It was called AIDS, Diet AIDS. Um, and you know it was very successful, and the the, the it's advertisement. A name. No, it wasn't. It was a great name. It aids your. It's a diet aid. It aids your diet. You lose weight when you eat these these diet bars rather than than chocolate. And it was fantastic. Everything was good, and um, their slogans were uh, "Losing weight is easier with AIDS," um, and. And then in the in the eighties, um, these the the AIDS epidemic, and these the horrible um, um, pictures of AIDS patients uh, uh, starving, you know, skin and bones dying, it totally changed. It AIDS was not it didn't work anymore, right? And the company making diet AIDS had nothing to do with that. It was pure. They were unlucky to have a name that was associated to. Uh, miserable death, um, total unluck, totally unlucky there. Uh, and a good example that you can do everything right and still get it wrong. There was a um, baby furniture store um, where I grew up, and it yeah. had been there for decades and decades and decades, and it was very popular. And it was named after the founder. Mm. And a childhood disease was later named the same no, thing. Oh, that's horrible. No. And they 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 kind of dug in. Like we've been called this for decades. The yeah, whole but if your name knows. is Asperger and you and you're selling children stuff, maybe it's not so cool. <laughs> so and it was a it was a deadly children's mm-hmm. disease that had been discovered. Oh, that's horrible. That was horrible. very similar to this person's. Mm. This the pronunciation was exactly mm. the same. The spelling yeah. was different, similar yeah. to this product that you're mentioning. Yeah. And they dug in and said no, the community knew. Um, but mm. you just kind of get, you know, um, a difficult reaction. Mm. And later they tried too late to rebrand and they went out mm. of business. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised. I mean, there's a, there's an example of the opposite of that, which I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here. But um, in the beginning of the, of the COVID, um, um, uh, now our current a current current pandemic um the uh the corona beer you know the mexican beer they they're like oh dang our name is corona um that's not so cool in 2020 so they put out a huge ad campaign where they said they're willing to pay budweiser um a 22 million dollars or some made up some uh to change names with them I mean, it's hilarious. Like they're 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 saying, "Hey, we got unlucky with our name, with 
Corona, and then we we want to change with our biggest competitor. It, you know, they owned up to it. They're like, hey, this is it. It's unfortunate, but and now apparently Corona beer is doing just perfectly fine. It's kind of an example through the last few uh, items and products that we've been talking mm-hmm. about that failure isn't. Um, Success isn't static and neither is failure. Something can be completely successful and then something major in the culture changes. And and our our three examples here were uh, three different terrible diseases that hadn't previously existed or hadn't had um, the the name that it later came to be known by. Um, And it taps into our unconscious and our conscious biases of what should be the appropriate cultural response, how you now as a consumer want to be affiliated with something. Um, and so what could be an enormous success can be a really temporary one for, and you can't see it coming. No, no. You can do all the analysis you want. You can have all the economic sort of uh, groundwork done very well. And then, bam, something hits you um, and out of nowhere. And you have to deal with it. There's There's a trend within sort of innovation management, I know this is totally nerdy and everything, but um, where the advice is that maybe companies, and I as a clinical psychologist think this is applicable on us as individuals as well, but where um, companies should be uh, better at failure recovery, not not spend so much time on failure avoidance because failure is going to get them anyway. So... And I think that applies in our lives as well. If you're always trying to avoid failure, you're going to steer your decisions in a certain direction, which probably most likely won't be the best for you. Um, but if you're willing to take a little risk and you can steer your, you know, your path to where you want to be and are willing to re- accept, deal with, and then recover from those, um, those mistakes and failures it's often a more rewarding path and definitely when it comes to innovation and creativity. So I think that's kind of an interesting aspect as well. Like don't, don't, don't build walls and build up a, a, a sort of a strategy or existence based on avoiding failure at all costs. Be, be pretty good at just dealing with it when it hits you, then it's fine. Are you willing to share a failure that you had that, that you recovered from? Um, yeah, I mean, the biggest failure for me since I opened Museum of Failure is that my ex-business partner sued me and it was super expensive uh, legal costs and it led to my personal bankruptcy in Sweden. That was, it was, it was a, finan- I don't know what you call it, financial failure, but I mean, bankruptcy is pretty much the end of the line when it comes to um, business. And for me, that was... I mean, it was, even though I understood the context and everything, it was still, and the actual consequences for me were quite small. It was still, it was still a a definite sense of failure from my perspective. What could I have done better? I should have been more careful and not done business with people I can't trust, et cetera, et cetera. And what, you know, what, what, what could I have done different to avoid this? But it still hit me, um, and it was a it was a good reminder, um, a painful but good reminder that, like you said earlier, success is temporary, but so is failure. Um, 
the 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 whole ordeal um which is over now um was was ext- and I know this sounds so corny when I say it, but it was I mean it it was an extremely valuable learning experience and it was extremely expensive for me and painful yeah um but it's over and I've 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 gained very much from it not financially but everything else you mentioned earlier there's a museum of broken relationships is there a thought that there may be a place in the museum of failure for people's personal failure stories we we do have a failure confessional it's um it's an entire wall where people write their own personal failures on post-it notes and then put them up for the whole world for the whole world to see and we started it early uh, in 2017 with our first exhibition and it was so popular we had to use more and more walls and it just grew like (laughs) way bigger than we thought it was going to be and so now even in minneapolis now at the exhibit there um there's it's a it's very simple but it's also very um you know you've seen gone through the whole exhibition and then it's time to reflect on your own on your own decisions what you've done and some people you know it's funny things some people are serious things in between um but it feels good when you confess or like when you own up to it and say yeah no that didn't work out instead of trying to sugarcoat it or or deny um deny it i know you said early on in the podcast that you were not wanting to write a book but yeah. it occurs to me in listening to all of this, both uh, what the museum means to people and and um, what's in it and the stories behind every uh, artifact in it, but also your interwoven life story of getting to this place and what's happened since. It occurs to me that there is a book here. Do you still not yeah. want to write a book? Yeah, I just, I, I, I now, I mean, um, everybody, including myself, is telling me that I need to write this book and I just can't, I can't do it. I'm, I'm writing other books. I can do other things, I, but I just can't do it. And I need a, an old fashioned kick in the ass. <laughs> well, maybe this episode will yes. do it. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Once no, you see that it's on, on new books network. <laughs> yeah, no, but there's definitely there's de- I've been when when the museum initially got the uh, media the massive media attention in 2017-18 I, I I think I had 12 book offers from the some, some of the largest publishers in the world and I I I was too busy at the time I couldn't even think of writing a book and then now with covid and I've had plenty of time I still haven't written a book so um I, I, I need to, I need to, I need to get this moving again, for sure. Thanks for reminding me, thanks for making my life more complicated. You're welcome. <laughs> Anything I can do. No, thanks. That's enough. <laughs> well, when, when I have you a question, it. I have a question for okay. you. Yeah. So yes. you've been, you, you've done several, you've, how long you've, you have, you're an experienced interviewer. I hope so. I think you're like my hundredth. Maybe I've, so, I've only had this channel for about a year. Okay, so taking all this experience, um, please uh, tell me about a failure on your part related to your to this. 
related to the podcast? Yeah, podcast or anything. So, or yeah, or or if there's anything else. But I, I'm if you've if you've done anything where you're like, ouch, that that hurt. Like that, I shouldn't. I I failed. Well, I guess a couple that come to mind are. Um, I also went to a California public high school, and we were offered exactly one history class and no choice of who the teacher was. So I got assigned into my honors history class. And um, I also got assigned um, an oral report and what the topic would be. And as a 15-year-old introvert, it was a lot. So I really, really worked hard. I prepared. And uh, I got literally about a minute into it. And the teacher said in front of the whole class, I can tell you're going to waste our time. Sit down. Oh, no. Yeah, it was it was horrifying. And so I didn't sit down. I actually just walked right to my desk and swept up all my stuff and walked out the door. And um, when I got to college, I um, my first year was having a great time. Every every class I took, I thought this will be my major. I just Mm. I was just Mm. loving the learning. And my advisor said, you know, I really want you to get all of your gen ed requirements done, you know, you're, you're within your first two years. And one of them is that you have mm. to take a history class. And I noticed that you haven't signed up for yeah. one. And, you know, I noticed that you're not even <laughs> putting in for one for, you know, next fall. Yeah, and you're I, avoiding and I was this. Like, oh, mm-hmm. no. And so I thought about it and I thought, I've got to have a safe place to fail. And I don't want to do it yeah. here on campus uh, where professors know me. And mm. the tuition here is really expensive, and so I can't afford to fail a class. So I went. No, no. I went to um, a really good uh, public college that summer, uh, UCLA, mm. uh, because I could enroll for yeah. for a credit class as a non student because I was already a, a college student somewhere else. Yeah. So yeah. I took a history class there and my plan was nobody knows me. No one in this classroom knows me. Nobody on this campus knows me. <laughs> it doesn't and, matter if you yeah, fail. And, and it doesn't matter. Well, I don't like wasting mm-hmm. money. If I fail this class, I can take it again next summer and I'll still have mm-hmm. uh, my credits. And then the other thing is that um, only the credits would transfer mm-hmm. to my college, not the grade. They would see the grade, but it wouldn't affect my GPA. Mm-hmm. So I was like, this is the best I can do with the fact mm-hmm. that I'm absolutely terrible at history and I'm going to fail. And so I take the class and the first assignment is um, the midterm and he hands the midterms back and he yeah. says, I give these back in order of grade, not alphabetically. And he just is going through the class and handing Ooh. back the midterms and handing back the midterms and handing back the midterms. I got mine last. And I was just oh, trying no. not to truly <laughs> trying not to throw up. And so yeah. uh, and he handed them all face down and I just, you know, put it into my, my backpack and didn't even look at it. And so as I'm leaving, he says, I'd like you to come up and stay for a few minutes and talk to me. And so uh, he was talking to me and it was a little bit before it was sinking in what he said. And he, he, um, he was saying, why aren't you taking this for a grade? Why are you taking it pass fail? And how many history classes have you taken before? And, um, <clears throat> and, um, can you pull out your test? I want to show you something. And it, it turned out he had given them worst to best. <laughs> and wow, I, I, wow, I was like, wow, uh, wow. I think you made a mistake. I don't think you understand. This is my worst subject ever. Like I'm beyond terrible at this. And yeah, so he right. asked me some questions and he just, he said, I think you need to accept that that was the teacher. Yeah, and exactly. later ask yourself some questions like, why would a teacher do that to a student? 
you know, and, and things like that, rather mm, than take mm. it as this is the subject of history. <clears throat> and so yeah. um, it was a lot to kind of process. I did not do what he wanted, which was change from pass fail to a letter grade, because I thought this is beginner's luck. <laughs> we have another half of the summer to get through <laughs> for me to fall on my face. Let's not let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, and I and I love the class. And you fast forward to um, the end of sophomore year when they said, we need mm. you to declare a major. And I really surprised myself by saying yeah. history. And it was based on that one wow. history class that I took. Wow. And my PhD is in history. Wow. That's such a it, cool story. That is such it, an it awesome is, story. But I don't want to discount how truly horrible that experience was when I was 15. Like it, it yeah, was so no, no. it was so profound that I truly would not take history on a campus where anybody knew no, me because no. I was sure we were going to reproduce the same outcome. And I was sure that that mm. teacher was right. Oh. That's how profound that failure was, you know, and the way that it went about, you know, really publicly um, to this. Well, it's, but, but it's actually not to discredit it, but, or to, you know, discount your, the feelings that and how, how, you know, how I guess discomfort isn't the right word, how painful it was. But I mean, even then, I mean, it was a bruise. It wasn't a tattoo. I mean, you you got over it and you got a PhD in history or a I major did get my in PhD. In, I majored in history and then I got my PhD in it. But if it had not been for that teacher who gave me, that professor who gave me 10 minutes after yeah. class, yeah. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't yeah, have yeah. changed. It would, that bruise would have been a tattoo and people would have said, I don't see anything. And I would have been, look closer, look yeah. closer. It's permanent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, look, permanent. It's, there. it's unfixable. It's unchangeable. <laughs> wow. Um, and yeah. that really, that plus the way my dad looked at failure um, as, mm. a, a, as, a, as a giant learning experience, you know, um, yeah. really yeah. allowed me, I think, to have that, you know, to take in what that professor said and be like, I have this entire pathway open to me that I didn't know that I had. Mm. That, I just, I just, I, that, oh, awesome story. I love it. Um, but it also, you, you mentioned that your dad's relationship to failure, his approach. Um, this is something that I've seen just in all the discussions I've had about failure, you know, in, in, in whatever context it is, that um, how your parents relate to their own failures. And when you fail um, as a kid, that's super powerful, um, that as anything else from our from our parents but how that's partially how we learn to deal with uh, uh, obstacles or, or hardships and including failure um, we get that sort of from our from our parents I will say that his perspective um, was not um, similar to a, a lot of um, other uh, caregivers in my world uh, <laughs> so I, I distrusted I mean I it's interesting I trusted and distrusted. And I wasn't all in on my dad's way of seeing <laughs> failure, but, but through no, my life course, no. I started to see the wisdom in what he was saying. Also that he had lived it himself. He had had a very weird, twisty path through college and defining his way to his career, including opening a private law practice and it failing because he didn't want to bill people because he truly believed people would pay him if they could. And so, um, it, it failed. He went under and, um, he became a public defender. It's a system we have in the States where if you can't afford your lawyer, one is appointed for you and everything aligned for him. And that was his passion and his career for the rest of his life. And he was, um, so, but he had to, he had to have a lot of, um, 
crash courses in learning, which is how we looked at yeah. failure to, to get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he would kind of say, Good like, if, if private practice had had worked, my life wouldn't be as as it would it no, be, exactly. my life wouldn't be working for me the way that that it is now because exactly. I find meaning and exactly. purpose in what I get up every day to do because so, I believe that I help people. He used to say that. So there's a there's there's a that's that's a great way to end this uh, conversation because I wanna I I I would love to share. I would ask everybody listening, you as as well, Christina. Um, to uh, go on YouTube and find, it's called um, the the story of the Chinese farmer. Um, I'm gonna Google it right now so I get the right. Um, it's Alan Watts, Chinese farmer story. Alan Watts. Um, check it out on YouTube. And it's brilliant. It's the story of the farmer who has luck and unluck happen to him. And after every event, he says, when, when, when people say, oh, you're so lucky or you're so unlucky, he always says, well, maybe, maybe not. And then something else happens. I'm not going to destroy it, uh, watch it or listen to this story. It's short and very powerful. And what your dad, his, the story where he failed in private practice and it made him the most, you know, gave him the most awesome career uh, later on fits perfectly aligned with this, this story of the farmer. We have about one minute left and then I promise to let you go. So in the <laughs> little bit of time we have left, what do you hope that this episode sparks for listeners, Samuel? I really hope that, I mean, I, I, I and I can't motivate that um, because we haven't focused so much on it, but just us having a discussion about failure, uh, I hope it can, it, it can lead lead someone that's listening to reevaluate their approach and their take to risk and failure and to be less afraid of this social, uh, the, that sort of judgment from others that we're so afraid of. Um, so that fear of failure is not so much about the failed project or the failed event. It's, it's the fear of what other people will think about us. And if we realize that most of that that sort of fear is in our heads and and we overestimate how horrible it is, then I hope that, that people will be more open to make those take those risks that are meaningful to them. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Samuel West, and talking to us about the Museum of Failure. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please... Join us again.